welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of MB and Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, and the citation for this case is 2016 UKSC 53. This case that we're going to be looking at today is to do with pensions law, which can often be quite dull, but this case is actually very interesting and deals with some relevant social issues as well. If we get the boring pension stuff out of the way first, we need to know before having a proper look at this case that a woman who is born before April 1950 is eligible for a state pension at the age of 60, whereas a man who was born before December 1953 is eligible for a state pension at the age of 65. This is important because the appellant in this particular case, MB, was born as a man and got married to a woman, but from 1991 onwards lived their life and identified as a woman. This included having gender reassignment surgery in 1995, but an important fact is that MB did decide to remain married to her wife. In 2008, MB, who was born in 1948, considered herself to be eligible for a state pension as she turned 60. However, her application for a state pension failed because she did not have a gender recognition certificate. She has challenged this decision through the court system and failed, but now the case reaches the Supreme Court. This court identified three key pieces of UK legislation that we're going to have a look at now. The first of these was the Gender Recognition Act 2004, and this act allowed people who had had gender reassignment surgery to apply for a gender recognition certificate so that they could be acknowledged for things like a state pension as the gender that they had been reassigned to. However, remember back in early 2005 when this legislation came into force, same-sex marriage wasn't recognised within the UK. The only way that such a person could get a gender recognition certificate was to get an interim certificate, then have their marriage annulled, and then get a full gender recognition certificate so that they could be treated as their assigned gender. Needless to say that this did not suit MB, who wished to remain, married, and live their life as a woman. The second key piece of legislation we're going to be looking at is the Civil Partnership Act 2004 that came into force later that year in December 2005. This only really improved things very slightly though for people like MB. In order for a gender recognition certificate to actually be acquired, a person still had to get their marriage annulled and then would have to enter into a civil partnership. The third piece of legislation that we're going to have a quick look at is not really relevant here, but it's important to mention. The reason it's not relevant is because it was passed and came into force after 2008, which is the relevant date for MB claiming her pension. But it should be noted for anyone listening that the Marriage Same-Sex Couples Act 2013 did allow a full gender recognition certificate to be issued to a married applicant as long as they had the consent of their spouse. So even though this is the case now, this wasn't the situation in 2008, so we're going to ignore it for the purposes of this particular case. MB's main argument was based on a key piece of EU legislation that was originally passed way back in 1979. This was the Council Directive on the Progressive Implementation of the Principle of Equal Treatment for Men and Women in Matters of Social Security. 
In particular, Article 4 states that there shall be no discrimination whatsoever on ground of sex, either directly or indirectly by reference in particular to marital or family status. Taking Article 4 into account, the argument by MB was that gender recognition could fairly be based on things like physical or psychological characteristics, and this was fair to take into account when determining someone's gender. However, the argument follows that it's not fair to take into account someone's marital status, as that has nothing to do with gender recognition. The counter-argument by the Secretary of State says that social factors are important and also can be taken into account when determining someone's gender. Remember that this case goes back all the way to 2008 and at that time it was not socially accepted, at least not legally so, that a marriage could exist between anyone apart from between a man and a woman. As we spoke about earlier, civil partnerships had been recognised, but we were still some way off same-sex marriage. Clearly then the argument follows that social factors do indeed play a role in gender recognition. When it came to the Supreme Court actually offering an interpretation of Article 4 of the Equal Treatment Directive, they couldn't really come to a straight answer. When the directive was originally designed in 1979, the drafters probably weren't really thinking of transgender individuals, and so we're trying to take an old piece of legislation and make it relevant to the modern era, an era where LGBT rights are fully recognised and same-sex marriage is a part of our legal system. Furthermore, there was no real EU law authority on this subject, and so, in the absence of a clear answer or decision from the five Supreme Court justices, the case was referred to the Court of Justice of the European Union. I think that their answer to this question is potentially going to be very interesting for any law student or academic who is interested in judicial interpretation. We're essentially dealing with three distinct eras, 1979 when the directive was originally first passed, 2008, which is where this case takes place, and 2016, which is the date today. If the European Court judges take an approach that's based on looking at what the drafter originally intended, then it's very unlikely that there will be much solace for MB and transgender rights in general. This approach, though, is very unlikely, as the directive surely has to evolve over time. However, what will be more interesting is this distinction between 2008 and 2016. Remember, under the preliminary reference procedure in EU law, the court has to answer the question without actually deciding the case. In other words, the Court of Justice will not be applying a 2008 state of mind because they are only answering the question as to gender recognition in a very general sense of the word. If we take it for granted then that the Court of Justice is hopefully going to answer this question with a 2016 mindset, then things look relatively positive for MB. This is not to say though that the case is a dead certainty for MB to win and the Secretary of State to lose. Remember that this is still a very controversial area across most of Europe. While the UK certainly recognises same-sex marriage, a number of other EU member states do not recognise same-sex marriage and still hold very conservative attitudes, i.e. marriage should be between a man and a woman. It's certainly not impossible that the Court of Justice could agree with the arguments put forward by a Secretary of State 
and say that social factors in a range of European Union countries still would treat social factors such as religious attitudes as a key part in gender recognition. Clearly with our Western liberal mindset this would seem a little bit ridiculous to us. I mean, I was born a man, I identify as a man, and the idea that when I get to pension age I will be refused my pension because I am still single, or because of any other marital status, obviously seems completely arbitrary. It is obviously to be hoped that the Court of Justice will follow suit in this line of reasoning, but it's certainly not impossible that they would simply want to avoid controversy altogether. You can imagine some of the misinformed headlines that would follow such a decision, such as the Court of Justice allows transgender marriage or some such nonsense. But hopefully that will not be enough to prevent them taking what is ultimately a very sensible and progressive viewpoint. Well, thank you very much for listening to this podcast episode. Also, thanks as ever to bensound.com, who provides the theme music for this podcast as well. I'm on Twitter at Marcus Cleaver, as well as on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver. But in the meantime, I'll speak to you next week. Bye!